Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, The Missionary God. So let's turn in our Bibles to John 3.16, as John brings us a message entitled, The Compulsion of Love. Love. You know, that word gets bantered around in our culture with reckless abandon. At least the ancient Greeks had four different words for four very different phenomena. You know, for them, eros was sexuality. Storge was affection or natural obligation. It might be there in marriage in which affection rises out of the obligation that one has to the other. And then phylos or phileo is liking. It has to do with finding the other the object of our pleasure. And agape is unconditional love that allows one person to sacrifice for another. That's the love that delights in giving, not to receive something in return. And this is love. It comes from the very nature of the lover, and that is the love of God. Now, the Greeks had different words for these things, but English has but one word, love. A wide range of things can be intended by that one word. You know, someone makes love. Someone loves baseball. Someone loves his or her baby. Someone loves his or her country or his or her God. See, all these expressions mean something so very different that any discussion of love is immediately sabotaged by what I think is really the poverty of the English language. Now, there's another thing that complicates matters even further. It's a matter of what we call self-love. Now, for those of you who've never met me, I'm just about to reveal to you just how old I am. Listen, I am so old that I can actually remember when self-love became a thing. I remember there was a time when someone did something that was hurtful or immoral or disdainful to others. We used to say, ah, he does that because he's selfish. All he cares about is himself, and all she loves is herself. And we meant by that that the good that we can and must do means that we must deny ourselves in order to expend ourselves for others. But when I was a student in university, and I actually have an undergraduate degree in psychology, well, I learned then that the reason why people commit crimes and why they hurt others is because they feel unloved. And furthermore, they've heard so many hurtful things about themselves in the past that they can't even now love themselves. And because that person doesn't love himself or herself, then out of self-loathing, they begin to strike out in loathing to others. And what they need then is positive self-regard. That's what I was taught. We need to tell people that they're basically good. And once they realize they're good, they'll begin to regard themselves as good. And out of that, they'll learn to love themselves. And only once they love themselves will they be able to love others. Now, by the way, I know that some of you who are listening to my voice can't even imagine another way of seeing things. Self-love, you've come to believe, is essential to loving anyone else. And we even add to that, unless you love yourself, I mean, how can you expect anyone else to love you? But I hope you're seeing what I'm saying. I'm saying that as whereas once we in the West thought that self-love was a moral defect, we called it then selfishness. Now in our day, we've come to see it as the chief of virtues. And fascinatingly enough, a great many Christians have jumped onto this new way of seeing things as if this matter were biblical all along. 
And so we love to quote both the words of Jesus and the words of Paul. Love one another as you love yourself. And there it is. If you hate yourself, I mean, you're going to hate others. If you love yourself, you can love others just like you love yourself. That's what we are being taught in many circles. But of course, Jesus actually never taught self-love. He didn't say you have to learn to love yourself so that you can love others. He did say that we are to love others exactly like we already love ourselves. Hope you see the difference, but in case you still can't, let me allow Paul to explain it to you. I'm reading Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. I almost hear the objection. Of course, people hate their own flesh. They have a poor body image, for one. And furthermore, some people even commit suicide. I mean, what can that be but self-loathing? But if you say that, you misunderstand Paul. And you want evidence as to how much you love yourself. Listen, Bubba, you love yourself with a sacrificial love that looks like agape. You spend most of your money on yourself. You clothe yourself, but you have not clothed the poor. You feed yourself, but you haven't fed the hungry. You make sure that you have a bed to sleep in, but you've not provided one for others. And you hunt around for compliments from others. And you're hurt when someone says terrible things about you, but but you don't feel the same grief when someone says terrible things about others. If you hear of starving people, it disturbs you a little. But if you hear someone criticize you, it disturbs you a lot. That's how much you love yourself. See, the fact is, you don't have to be trained to love yourself. You do it by nature. But what about those who commit suicide? Well, let me paint a scenario. I'm told that there are some pre-med students that when they don't make it into med school, take their own lives. So what's happening here? Well, these people had envisioned a life as a medical doctor, and the love they had for seeing themselves in that way was so strong that when that was snatched away from them, they were crushed to despair. That's how much they loved themselves. See, we take our lives when we fail to find meaning, but we don't take our lives when others fail to find meaning. See, our focus and our love is self-directed. It's so by nature. And that's why Paul can say that husbands should learn to love their wives as they love themselves. And furthermore, says Paul, Christ loves us that way. See, we sacrifice all for ourselves. Did you know that Christ sacrificed all for us? You see the parallel. One is done for self, the other is done for someone else. But it is the same impulse to give, to cherish, to sacrifice for the object of our love. Ah, but what then would the Bible have to say about those who have suffered with a poor self-esteem? Well, I think Keith and Kristen Getty said it right in their wonderful song, My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. It's a wonderful biblical song. One line expresses, well, uh, a biblical sentiment. Let me quote it to you. It's the last line in the song. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. It's a biblical sentiment. If I want to see evidence of my worth, I should stop looking to my own body image or to my talents, or in what I own, I should look at God's Word. See, I'm created in the image of God. I have in the cross become the object of God's love. There, my worth or my value is fixed. I need to understand this biblical doctrine. I need to believe it. I need to learn to live in it. But I'm also struck by my unworthiness. Nothing in me merits Christ. 
coming to die for me. I'm unworthy of the kindness of God, unworthy of his attention to me, and most of all, I'm unworthy of of the cross. I deserve hell, and yet I've received grace. Ah, that's love. Now, having said all of that, we're ready to define love. Love is the giving of ourself for the benefit of the object of our love. Love looks for ways to bless, to benefit, and to bring goodness to another, and love is ready to pay the price for that. So here's the news flash: Having sex is not the same as making love. Some of you are going to need some time to take that in. But what then? You know, since this is my last message on the theme of missions, what would all of this mean for love to compel us to go and make disciples of all men? Now, as I say this, I'm mindful that the first impulse of missions is not love for the world, but it is love for the glory of God. And it seems inconceivable for us that our lives would be given for anything but the glory of God. But please understand what this means. Love is the opposite of a self-centered life. Love compels us to think about self a little less than we thought of it before. Love allows us to think more about the glory of God than the glory of self. Love allows us to say with John the Baptist that he must increase and I must decrease. Love allows us for a kind of sanctified forgetfulness. It was John Piper who once said that no one stands at the verge of the Grand Canyon and thinks about how great they are, or for that matter, how bad a body image they might have. Rather, for a moment, in the face of splendor, we forget ourselves and we stand in wonder at something that utterly consumes us. We stand before glory. I am, of course, never unaware of myself. I understand that. I must continue to show concern for myself as well as concern for my own spiritual well-being. I know that. But now I have come to see that God in his beauty is, is greater than myself. No, I think I've said it wrong. God is infinitely more beautiful and worthy infinitely of more honor than I am. And in his presence, I would despise myself. Now then, I think we're ready to talk about the debt of love. February is Back to the Bible Canada's International Focus Month. Over the last number of years, God has graciously presented opportunities for this ministry to network with global partners that share our values and intent. Currently, our partnerships extend to the United Kingdom, Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean. New Bible teaching tools, devotionals, and booklets are being translated now into 14 languages and growing and we continue to work with international partners to train pastoral leaders to effectively teach the Bible. We're so grateful and privileged God has opened doors for international ministry partnerships. Your financial support makes it all possible. To find out how you can send pastors to the Bible teaching conferences or participate in our $25,000 international match campaign, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. Did you know that anyone who becomes involved in missions to pay off the debt of love that we have to God is really fooling himself or herself? While it is true that we're indebted to God, we actually have no means to repay the debt we owe. And furthermore, the thought that we would repay God for what he has done for us in Christ 
Well, it's really a horrible thought. Would you really think that, first of all, you can offer God anything that looks like repayment? And if you could repay, well, think of it if you could. In that case, we and God are even now. We would no longer owe him anything, not thanks, not worship. After all, the debt is paid up. No, no, this is not the case. The debt will eternally remain. It is profoundly immoral to think that since God has supplied us with what we have, that we in turn have supplied God with what he needs. See, that's an unworthy thought. In fact, that's blasphemy. But we must also remember that there is a debt. Now, we can't repay God, nor must we ever try. Our only response to the grace and love of God is this, thankfulness, gratefulness, and finding delight in God. It is to revel in what God has done. It's to find in God our bread of life, find in him our treasure chest of of holy joy. It's to say to God, as David said it, found in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, our response is expressed well in Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15, where we're forbidden from imagining that we can do anything for God, but rather in response to what God has done for us, we are to offer thanks to God and live in obedience to him and call on him in the day of trouble, and that's it. We don't go to the nations with a mission to share the gospel in order to fulfill the debt or to pay God back. Such a motivation is appalling. It's filled with an unrealistic, high appraisal of ourselves. Would we really think that even for a small moment that God is counting on us? And by the way, I've got to interject with a thought. I once heard a woman tell me that God had revealed to her, she said, that God believed in her. I actually laughed to her face. I told her I was quite sure that the God of this world had told her that, but I was quite also sure that the great creator told her nothing of the kind. God had no faith in her at all, I said. God, I said, has a perfect view of her. And if God needed to count on her, and he doesn't, but if he needed to count on her, he already knew that she'd fail and she'd let him down. No, no, God doesn't believe in you. God believes you're a hopeless sinner in need of rescuing. Now, this kind of biblical thinking leads us then to approach missions from an entirely different perspective. See, we think it's wrong ever to tell God's people that he's done so much for us. What will we then do for God? I've heard missions appeal say exactly that. Again, the audacity, the self-centered overestimation of ourselves that we would do something for God. Imagine those people who teach, you know, God has no hands but our hands to do his work. Really? You actually think that God is lacking in power? What an arrogant, God-dishonoring thing to say. Well then, if that's not the motivation for doing missions, what is it? Well, let's begin by stating that which the Bible demands of us. Missions is not something for God, nor is it paying him back. But what then of love? Where does that come in? Well, Romans 13, verse 8, I think, helps us to understand love as it relates to not only missions, but to all things that we do. You know, that passage is a part of Paul's injunction, which tells believers how to live. And it simply says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Now, please remember, we're now talking about love in the biblical sense of the word. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's love. 
John said it again in 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now watch what comes next in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we should love God back. No, no, that's not what it says. Remember, in spite of the contemporary songs that we sing, the issue is not that we have loved God. It's that God has loved us. So let's look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 again. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's it. You can't love God sacrificially, for you offer him nothing. You can't sacrifice for God. But listen, this is so essential, you can sacrifice for someone else. So let's clarify our use of love. We love God when we find our pleasure in him when we find in him a treasure chest of holy joy. We love God when we acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from above and not from us. We love God when we tell him, Oh God, you are the delight of my life. Fill me with the knowledge of you. Let me grow fully into Jesus so that I might be identified with him. Let my life be hid in Christ Jesus, my Lord, so that I might grow in him more fully in knowing him. And that's how we love God. But the love we have for others is a very different kind of love than the one we have for God. The love by which God loved us, that is, the sacrificial love, must be reproduced in our relationship with others. And this is what produces the motivation for missions. How is it possible to see the lost and not be moved by the love with which God has loved us? For God has loved us when we were unworthy. Now, of course, in 1 John, when John speaks of love for others, John has fellow believers in mind. I know that. But it's also true that we have a debt of love for the nations. It may be that we find the nations willfully suppressing the truth of God, but how can we condemn them? How can we condemn their sins when we find that same sin in ourselves? And yet we who have suppressed the truth of God have found the mercy of God. No, no, the love of God constrains us. Therefore, we must respond to the nations. Christians are called by God and by the love of God to love the nations, even as God has loved us. There is a little short sentence found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. It tells us much about Paul's motivation for missions. You know, that sentence simply says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls, Paul tells the Corinthians. That's why he traveled to Corinth. Now, that's also what Paul says to the Philippian Christians. You remember the context of the Philippian letter. Paul is about to appear before Caesar's tribunal, and he'll have to answer questions regarding his preaching of the gospel, his planting of churches, and winning men and women to faith in Jesus all over the Roman world. And they will decide whether he deserves to live or die for these activities. And it is here that Paul gives that wonderful triumphant expression that's found in Philippians 1.21 for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But think how often we've misunderstood what he's telling us. Some of us, because we approach the Bible through our agenda rather than the Bible's agenda, simply assume we already know what he's saying. You know, for me to live means for me to stay alive and enjoy life is all about Christ giving me the enjoyment of life and then to die as gain. But listen to Paul's explanation to what he is saying. What did he mean when he said, for me to live is Christ? So I'm reading Philippians 1, 24. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Let's see if we can restate that in such a way that that makes Paul's words sound contemporary to us. He's saying, I've been so immersed in Jesus that heaven and the life to come is the most attractive thing that I can contemplate. And so to die is, is gain. I'll then have something that is infinitely better than what I have here. I long for heaven more than you can imagine. I want it. And so if Caesar's courtroom finds me guilty and sentences me to death, it will be for me like hitting the jackpot. I would be released from my troubles and my struggles. And what I would gain is overwhelming to me. But as much as I want that, says Paul, I have a debt of love to you. To live is Christ in the sense that to live is to repay the debt of love that I have to you and make sure that your faith like mine is progressing. I must stay and I must deny myself the hunger for heaven for the time being. And that, my dear friends, is the entire motivation for missions. Missionaries, when they're godly and when they're biblical, find that the nations do not deserve the gospel, but they also find that we ourselves who have found Christ didn't deserve it either. But God so loved the world that he gave his son, and therefore we have a debt of love that must be paid to the nations. And like the love of God which cost the precious Savior his life, so also our love to the nations will have to be a costly love. Love always demands a price. John, thanks for the message. Thanks for a great series. And you know, you really enlightened me a little bit today. I'm always often thinking about how critical we are of others, of governments, of of people that sort of restrain us from, from conveying the gospel message. And yet, you know, we're really suppressing that ourselves when we don't share the gospel with others. Yeah, I think it's an overestimation of ourselves when we only criticize uh, the non-Christian world out there and then yet look at them and say, my goodness, I see all of those things in myself as well. And were it not for the love of God that continually constrains me, I would be exactly like that. Um, You know, what a beautiful thing to then recognize that since I am identified with the worst of these, then how else can I respond to the worst of these but think that I owe them everything. And so, you know, this, this, this motivation for mission has to be properly unraveled. Uh, if it's not, it leads to very bad thinking, and uh, it's important to think rightly both about God and what love compels us to do. Thanks so much, John, for a wonderful message and a wonderful series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. We want to share the great thing God is doing beyond our borders. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 international match campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts, supplying Bible teaching resources, 
Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. Your generosity makes it all possible. For more information or to give, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.